when it comes to this social maturity, the things that we're finding is that human development, right? The human formation really accelerates the adoption of the spiritual practices because it's like no one else is doing this for you we're doing this because we want to see you whole in christ we don't just want you to be a theology nerd Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every Knees Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I am joined, as always, by Dave the Pro Van Vickle. How are we doing today, Dave? I'm good. I'm good. I uh, Well, it's super rainy here, which puts me in a kind of a bad mood, but also I'm plugging away. I'm happy to be recording with you. I know, right? It's and beautiful. I know. Well, it's been it's been so crazy. Your job is so crazy now. And my life is so crazy now. <laughs> what makes your life so crazy? I know what makes my life so crazy. I mean, it's just like, you know, managing the the medical calendar is one thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the jobs, you know, that I'm doing. And, and you know, this um, position I'm in right now with the Immaculate Heart Center here in Pittsburgh, it's not like a... Um, I don't know how to say it, like a transaction kind of a job, right? I mean, you kind of have to be in a relationship with these people. Yeah. And so they have access to my phone and stuff like that. And so that's always an adventure. But, you know, (laughs) working for the church is an adventure. It always is. It always is. It's such a difficult thing to navigate so much because I was talking to a buddy of mine who used to fire people from his work because in his legal counsel department at his corporation, he was the newest. And so he got all the terrible jobs and uh, yeah, so he had to go and fire people. And he was saying um, how different it is to fire people from a corporation than it was for me to let someone go here at work because in a corporation, it's your job, but at the church, it's also your faith. It's your community. It's your, you know, so there's a whole bunch of this. So, it is one of the very big arguments for worshiping in a different place than you work. And yeah. I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. There's This is an age-old debate. Like, do you get rooted in the community and truly serve as a community? Or do you put your distance between yourself so that you can keep your faith growing and have pastoral support? You know, um, how many people work for the church? They can't go to confession to their own pastors. Right, because yeah, they're all so intertwined. Yeah, right. So it's a real, it's a real struggle. I, uh, I, I'm got, I got a little relief, Dave. I got a little relief. Can I tell you about my relief? I'd, I'd love to know. <laughs> we this hired, sounds like a commercial. I know <laughs> it's actually a product called the Relief Factor or something. Yeah, like that. <laughs> it's an ointment, not a cream. Um, so the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> we just hired a very, very, very part-time person to help in youth ministry. And we rearrange youth ministry to kind of give the youth ministers a little bit of a break. And I'm excited about that because that means I don't have to do youth ministry anymore. It's very exciting. Yay, okay. So that's <laughs> it's good. very yeah. exciting. It just, I, I just thought like how funny it is that I went from being a coordinator of adult faith formation to a director of marriage, uh, to, what, director of evangelization, which included marriage prep and that. And RCI and stuff like that. And then I got infant baptism. Then I got children's faith formation. Then I got youth ministry. And then half the people left because of COVID. And it's like, oh, dear Lord, I'm now doing all of these things. So we we rewrote everything for our baptism curriculum. And we're redoing everything for our First Holy Communion reconciliation curriculum. And I just keep doing this. I just take one thing at a time. I shine the light on it. 
and we just go nuts, like ripping through every church document, going through scripture, going through the catechism, making sure that what we present is not just in alignment with church, not just not heretical or whatever, but like the best that we can offer. You know what I mean? And, uh, hopefully, hopefully by this next year, when we work through the kinks of a lot of our, um, uh, first communion prep, uh, you know, it'll be a shining beacon into a church filled with sorrow and darkness. <laughs> I'm not being dramatic, am I? Am I being dramatic? Yeah, I mean a little bit, but but we'll we'll take it. We'll take it. So we're, today we're going to do um, just like kind of a quick listener question episode. Try to answer these. Oh, I was Gomer's supposed to be using his new toys. That was supposed to be this. You're supposed to say listener mail. Yeah. Oh. How wonderful would that be? That feels fake, and I feel like you're promoting a soft Gnosticism right now. That's what I feel like. <laughs> An ecclesiological soft Gnosticism. You're welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah, I, and so, you know, we, we love, I love, that's my favorite part about this is the interaction with people. We answer a lot of emails personally, like if they are, you know, more personal. But um, we have three today that we're going to try to fly through. And, um, yeah, hopefully you can learn a little bit too. I mean, most of these are very, are questions that we've heard many times, you know? So the first one's from Alan. Hello, Gomer and Dave. I'm writing to you because I recently baptized my son and had the opportunity to evangelize to family who attended my son's baptism. However, I noticed that I butcher or choke when asked certain questions. For example, someone asked me, what does baptism do? Question. I replied that it forgives sins and that it unites my son to the Catholic Church as a priest, king, and prophet. This leads to follow-up questions such as, how can a baby have sins? And how does someone baptized somehow become a priest? I found myself unprepared or inexperienced in talking about these responses. The funny thing is that I have devoured tons of apologetics publications, so I should have some of this stuff memorized. However, I don't answer many of those questions often, so I'm trying to figure out a way to better prepare myself for the future. Here's my question. Is there anything out there that provides just a one or two sentence response to some of the most common questions about our faith? I sometimes only have a few minutes to share our faith with others. And when I do, I want to be totally prepared. Um, there is a Catholic apologist who has his one minute apologetics. Um, uh, let me see if I can pull that up. One minute apologetics from... Well, you got the one minute apologist from Dave Armstrong. Um, Dave Armstrong is a pretty incredible. Uh, he has uh, an encyclopedic mind. So his yeah. um, his books I use all the time. He has two books on on the Catholic faith and apologetics, and they're really, really great um, books that walk you through topically what the Catholic Church teaches, how it comes from Scripture and where, why it matters in the Bible, especially with um, dialoguing with Protestants. I use them often in my inclusion classes. So his book, One Minute Apologist, Essential Catholic Replies to Over 60 Protestant Claims. I also recommend um, for certain topics, if they come up more frequently, Tim Staples, for instance, has a book on salvation that's more of a dialogue book, like here's actually like how real dialogues happen. This is what you can say, blah, blah, blah. So um, that'd be my first go-to. Awesome. And I like, I also, I love the Dave Armstrong book um, and I use it very often. My thought here is different. I would say from what I'm reading here in your, in your email that those questions aren't apologetic questions. And what I would say is like, oftentimes we can know apologetics really, really, really well, but that doesn't necessarily mean we know theology very well. And I think that when I, 
knew apologetics inside and out um, that I kind of had felt like I had a command on the faith, but I didn't have, I really did not have the depth that I thought I had until I started learning theology. And so like with baptism, you're probably not going to get an apologetic book that answers how a baby can be a priest. You know, you're probably not going to have that, uh, that particular apologetic. And even the whole thing with how can a baby have sin? Of course, there's going to be apologetic books that cover this, but not in the depth that you no, they'll cover the validity of infant baptism, but right, not, not right, really anything. Right, else. right, yeah, and yeah. And Gomer's like an expert on apologetics, so he he knows all this. But my point is, like, I think you want to have more of a depth so that you can draw from that that deep well, um, because those are rich questions. Those two things are awesome that you could pull out some really awesome, great stuff. So that would be mine. Yeah, and the big thing here is. If you know the catechism, right? If you understand, Absolutely. you go to, um, so in the catechism, it's broken down into the four pillars. The second pillar is on liturgy and the sacraments. The second section is on the seven sacraments. So if you're trying to navigate it, that's how you do it. And then you go and look up baptism and there is a page, uh, an article entitled the grace of baptism. It's article number seven. And it just lists them out for the forgiveness of sins. You become a new creation. You're incorporated into the church, the body of Christ. You have a sacramental bond of unity with Christians and an indelible mark on your soul. That is, uh, and so you have those categories. They give you paragraphs that explain it. And it's really powerful because it gives you a summary understanding of the faith, which is often what they're looking for. Like they're not looking for you to defend as Dave said, what the church teaches. They're just asking for like, why are you doing this? Right? So one of the things that I did at my church is I took the right as uh, published by, I don't know, the USCCB, whatever in, in English. And I took the right and I put it in a booklet. I don't know if I'm legally allowed to do that, but whatever, it's yeah, all in-house. In and, uh, <laughs> and I just thought, you know, like we, we're going to have these people who are just sitting here for 20 minutes waiting for the baptismal right to start. Why not evangelize them? So I include a whole bunch of scripture references about baptism, a whole bunch of catechism references about baptism, and then I include my summary defense or explanation of baptism, and I summarize it as, right, baptism fulfills everything that went before it in the Old Testament, and I summarize a couple things like the crossing of the Red Sea, Noah's flood, all that stuff. I said, but at its core, it is a washing one soul in the blood of the Lamb, an appeal to God, as St. Peter says, for a clear conscience, right? That is, I'm removed from sin. And for infants, it is the removal of original sin and the claiming of someone for Christ to be a new creature, a new creation. And yet, and so the problem is a lot of people, they don't have a problem with the fact that you're doing it to a baby. They have a problem with the symbolism of baptism. Isn't this silly? Isn't this old? Isn't this antiquated? And again, that goes back to that same document on that we talked about earlier, the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments and the sacramental economy. We don't care about signs and symbols. So for most modern people, that's a weird thing. So just yesterday I had to do the RCIA program. Uh, I gave a talk on their mystagogia on liturgy in general and on certain things in the mass. And the whole thing is like, let me explain to you why signs and symbols matter before I can talk about the liturgy. Cause if you don't believe that they matter, if you roll your eyes or discount it, then the mass is is literally going to be nonsense to you. But if you do, then it can be the mystical gateway to heaven. Yeah. Awesome. And I think, you know, Alan, as far as Gomer mentioned the new catechism and that is, 
compared to other catechisms, theologically super rich. So like, I mean, you can start there and end there. Really, I mean, well, you don't have to end there, but there's clearly a, a more more of a depth of understanding you could have. But it's pretty deep. I mean, they go really deep into theology. And, and so. the greatest resource for all catechists is the in brief section at the end of yeah. there. It's like, oh, I forgot to prepare for class today. In brief and done. <laughs> we got a second question. You ready for this one, Dave? Yeah. Yeah, let's try it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. TLM verse <laughs> NO. Question in response yeah. to part one with Dr. Matthew Minard. Hi, EKSB. I was listening to an episode with Dr. Matthew Minard. Gormley said something that really stood out to me about the Eastern Rite in uh, minute 3755. <laughs> I, wow. I love the timestamp. It led to a really interesting discussion on the mass worship in the Eastern Rite. I've been having a hard time with family thinking the TLM is the end all be all of masses. I get that it's more reverent in some ways, definitely than the worst NO, but there are some things in the NO that seem true too, like some of the involvement and inclusion of the laity. And then Dr. Minard said the clericalization of the Latin mass TLM that really stood out to me. This is what I've been struggling with. I think I've always been, uh, I think I've always been a St. Francis massive poverty kind of person, probably just how I grew up. The whole discussion really verbalized things. I haven't been able to do with my family about the TLM. I don't read much, but I don't see the early church fathers performing the T performing the TLM in the way we do today. I don't see the early underground church doing the TLM. Some things in the TLM feel too much like pomp and court. It seems like there's something missing in between the NO and the TLM. Maybe I'm wrong and that's fine. Maybe you guys can elaborate on the differences between liturgies and rites. Or is there a book or a talk that you can recommend about the development of the mass? I know Gormley mentioned doing a series on the liturgy. Maybe that will elaborate. I, I mentioned a lot of things here. <laughs> but it felt nice to hear some things I've been feeling put into words. I couldn't find. Grateful for any response. Love the podcast. God bless. And I love how she yeah. ended it. If this is incoherent, as I suspect it is, it might have something to do with being a mom losing sleep with their 10-month-old. Sorry. <laughs> Dave, what are your initial thoughts? been there so i th i think i agree with the spirit of it i think although and of course like i mean the traditional latin mass and people who adhere to it and follow it it, it, it fall on a spectrum okay so there are people who will literally say that it's the mass of the apostles there are people who who, who will literally say that that that's where it comes from and that's just historically not defensible but but I, I think one of the things you said in the letter that really stood out to me was, um, you know, that uh, you get that it's more reverent than some of the Novus Ordo things. And I think I, I honestly believe that the massive popularity of the traditional Latin mass now is 90 percent people who are uncomfortable with the the problems with the Novus Ordo. And then there's the 10 percent of just very radical people who have done their research, done a lot, who are really, you know, um, I, I don't know how to describe them, but more, more in it for traditional reasons, the tradition of it. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I'm not settled on it as far as the end all be all. I think that most people who I've talked to who are more traditional see it as uh, the better option than the Novus Ordo. And I, I think if they're reasonable, that's usually the way that the conversation goes. One thing I would say is that you've always been a St. Francis, massive poverty kind of person. St. Francis was saying the the Latin mass. So, <laughs> well, he was participating in the Latin mass. He was a deacon, but. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that interesting? In an age where very few people were deacons, he opted to not become a priest. <clears throat> so awesome. I know. So awesome. He's incredible. Um, so 
there is always a lot of controversy in the liturgy wars um, when we talk about these things. I would reference um, an episode of Catching Foxes that I did with a guy named Dr. Larry Chap. I recorded a two-part series in oh, the second cool. one. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah, oh, yeah. He, he was, he was all fire. I didn't know fire. he came on. Yeah, oh, we did cool. a two-parter, and he afterwards, he goes, "My Mr. Gormley, I got to tell you, that was one of the best interviews I've ever had, and I do this stuff all the time now. And I was like, yes, yes, validate me. Um, but we it was a two-parter. The first part was on hell. The second part was on liturgy and all the confusion and liturgy wars and Vatican II and all this stuff. So let me lay out a couple things. Now, in our stupid climate today, you have to affirm and deny things. And so let me get the disclaimers out front. Yes, Vatican II was a valid council. Yes, the NO, Novus Ordo, <laughs> is a valid mass. So I'm not denigrating that or anything. And yes, I go to a Novus Ordo parish. I do not go to the Latin mass right now. Sometimes I go to the ordinary parish, which is nearby, but I go principally to uh, my home parish that I'm sitting in the office in uh, right now. So let me say this. Um, when it, the expression of the traditional Latin mass often has uh, two very distinct or three very distinct things, one Latin, two ad orientum and three chant. And uh, chant a Gregorian chant in Latin. So for the people to participate in the mass, the fathers of Vatican II wanted to create more opportunities where the priest was what we call the dialogues, dialoguing with the laity. Um, and the laity actually had to chime in at parts of the mass. Now, in the traditional Latin mass, there are a handful of parts where the laity respond. Dominus vobiscum et cum spiritu tuo, and with your spirit, um, and other things like that. But um, what the Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Vatican II's document on the liturgy, it talks about desiring the laity to participate more actively in the actual liturgy itself. Now, what happened, you said this great line where it said something in the middle between the TLM and the NO. And yep. there was in 1965 and revised in 1967, coming right out of the fruit of the council, was a mass that incorporated the vernacular and was promulgated, but was is not the Novus Ordo. It is essentially the Latin mass with some of the noble simplicity that the Sacrosanctum Concilium talks about and the some of the dialogues, but not all of the dialogues. So it was still like a work in progress added into it. All of that was completely undermined by a group called Concilium. Uh, Concilium was a working group headed by this famous Cardinal Bugnini. Um, there's a, he's kind of a, he's a super questionable figure, but yeah, he right. essentially, <laughs> maybe even I, a Freemason, who knows? Yeah, I, I wouldn't Google him cause you'll go down such a rabbit hole, but yeah. But, um, but at, at the end of the day, regardless of who he was, Pope Paul VI still signed off on a lot of his stuff. And you find that actually when you get into kind of like our, our standard Catholic thing is, well, there was the traditional Latin mass that no one liked. The priest had his back to you. He mumbled or was silent in most of his prayers and people hated it. And then there was, thank God, the Novus Ordo, which involved the laity. Let me exercise my universal priesthood. And that that narrative really isn't true. Um, that is a, a very rear guard, rear view mirror kind of clarifying thing and no one asked the lady what they wanted you know they were doing their thing there's a lot of people if you talk to them now they'll say oh i hated a latin mass you know in a lot of different ways they were all kids of course when the latin mass was going on but that being said in 1969 when the novus ordo was promulgated it started at advent in italy first and then went out to the rest of the english-speaking world in the 1970s or in 1970 um pope paul vi admitted he's like this is a liturgical innovation this is going to cause massive confusion, frustration, annoyance. Um, we're going to lose the Latin, the sublime, beautiful language, like all this stuff. And he's like, but we're doing it because modern man needs simple language in the vernacular. And this is, this is going to aid our apostolate. 
And if you step back, if you say like, this is the one reason why the question then becomes, well, did it work? Right. This was Paul the sixth justification for it because he saw it as uh, just like you said, the pomp and circumstance pulling people away. But one of the things you realize over time, and I've said it a couple times when we touch on liturgy on the show, is that secondary things and tertiary things, when isolated, look stupid. Right. Why do you have an altar rare? Why does the priest have his back to you? Why this? Why that? But you realize that those secondary and tertiary things uphold the primary things and they grew within the context of the liturgy. Yes, a European, you can talk about court and all that stuff, and you can talk about the high mass, but um, the average layperson's experience of that was. I know that the priest at least believes this is the body of Christ because I can't receive it unless I'm on my knees directly on my tongue. There's a communion plate underneath, like all this stuff. So the, when we, people argue and bicker over, oh, well, you know, this is more reverent, this is less reverent. Well, a really good Novus Ordo can be just as reverent. You ask yourself, what are the things baked in and why were those things removed? And you find that they weren't, some of them were removed from the Vatican II thing of a noble simplicity, um, things grew up over the centuries that maybe clouded the central mystery of the Eucharist. But then you also find that there were people with an agenda who wanted to make it look as much like a low Episcopal mass as possible. And right. they won the day. So you can find the Novus Ordo. The problem today with the Novus Ordo is people always say, well, the worst Novus Ordo, the best Latin, you know, okay, whatever. But you can look at expressions of the Novus Ordo and they are, you wouldn't even think they're the same mass. You wouldn't right. even think they're the same right. mass in the crazy abuses versus, you know, something like St. John Cantius in um, the Chicago diocese that now can no longer celebrate it in Latin. Um, my parish, my parish, you would never recognize it. Oh, really? Where I work. No, 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 it's at Orientum. It's uh, yeah, it would, it's, it would be pretty unrecognizable for people. Yeah. And so like I was talking with someone about ad Orientum and I said, okay, what does that word mean? Ad Orientum to face East to the East. But the word orient is, I'm like, think about how that infected our language. Like, oh, I got to yeah. reorient myself. I got to go attend orientation. I got to go attend the action of becoming Eastern. Like, what does that mean? It means that facing East doesn't mean I'm facing the tabernacle that was mounted to the altar. It means I'm facing the direction from which our risen Lord will come in judgment. It was eschatological. And we removed all of those meanings. And there's a broader conversation about the liturgical movement that started with a guy named Romano Guardini in the late 1800s and how that progressed and all these different people commenting and talking about it. And then how it kind of broke up into different camps and one camp was revised, revised, revised. So in the Novus order, there are things like dialogues, lift up your hearts to the Lord is right. And just all that stuff. And that the traditional Latin mass does not have, and it doesn't have it because it views the sacrifice of the mass as something the priest principally is concerned with. And we unite to him. It's not our participation trying to take over priestly duties. And so you find that in the Latin mass, you would never have some these things, whereas you find very commonly these abuses in the Novus Ordo um, because it's the context, right? Oh, we got to get the lay people more involved. So now I need to be a, it's not just these dialogues, but it's also EMHCs and sacristans. And you know what, Father, why don't I just give the homily? I'm better at speaking. And, you know, you find these things that just kind of creep in. So there's a lot there to unpack. And I'm sure I just angered a lot of people and I didn't mean to. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, and it's okay to be angry at him. No, you know, I, the noble simplicity argument um, resonates a lot with me. Because there are moments in the in the in the TLM that 
I and I hate to say it because I'll I'll get hate email too, but I it seems like seems unnecessary. Like we're three blessings instead of one or something like that. You know what I mean? That I I do like the noble simplicity argument, but but for the same price, it's like it's almost impossible to argue. It's it's harder to argue liturgy in America than it is to argue like race or something like that because there's so much baggage with both sides and everything like that. So yeah, and difficult. one of the one of the big things is that it informs our desires. So there's a book by a Protestant author, James K.A. Smith, I think, and it's called Desiring the Kingdom. And his whole argument about liturgy is it forms our pre-rational desires. It forms what we right. desire, even right. unconsciously. And so the arguments basically go, when you have these liturgy wars, you're actually having a war of our guts, right? Like your desires are in your gut. So these are, this is a reason why they get super emotional really quickly is because like, Oh, you're telling me I can't have these songs anymore. Like on Eagle's wings, but I buried my father to that song. And you're telling yeah. me it's stupid and blah, blah, blah. And my dad loved that song. And you know, and so it's, it's very, it becomes vitriolic very quickly price precisely because of this. I mean, you have people who have their conversions, um, you have people who have their conversions uh, to the the traditional Latin mass, and when Novus Ordo people hear that, they think, why? Like, they can't understand it. And then when you have traditional Latin mass people <laughs> hear the opposite, they're like, how? How could you have a conversion experience of this? Right. And it's like, well, because the Holy Spirit is powerful and he's working despite us. Um, yeah. But I do think the, the thing with the Eastern thing is up until Vatican II, a lot of the Eastern rites of the mass in their Eastern churches – were quickly becoming westernized and vatican II saved them from that that yeah. they really dived into their own traditions and it um it kind of rekindled a fire in a lot of them to be like no this is us this is our history and it's funny and, and they actually had a really prominent role some of their metropolitans which means archbishop had a really prominent role in vatican II, especially in the liturgical conversations so it's just fascinating yeah, it is. And it's like the kind of thing I, I know whenever I get into like liturgy discussions, I I feel the need to go super deep because of how 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 dug in both sides are. But I but like one of my favorite theology professors at Franciscan was talking to him about it one time and he's like, No, I no, I really like to understand the words that I'm saying. That was it. It was like all he said. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, great. Yeah. I, that's fine. I'm okay with that. So learn Latin. Um <laughs> oh gomer oh gomer i know okay do the next one we gotta i just realized it was 33 minutes whoopsie my name is daniel and i'm a longtime listener and focus team director i love the episode with josh packard the research he does is fascinating i wanted to offer both a thought on my experience with some of his findings and also a question a question it was mentioned the rapidly decreasing rate of social maturity in young people i would very much agree in that i see that in the students i work with how do you help less and less socially mature people experience belonging with each other, especially when they don't have the social skills? And he talked about things like Snapchat as that which defines friendship, uh, which is absolutely true. Uh, he ends by asking us, how do we respond to the lack of social maturity in our ministry with all this other stuff kind of pulling them away? So, Dave, why don't you take a first stab at it? Uh, are you making me take a first stab <laughs> at this? Gomer studies the moderns. Gormley is making me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I was having a, a conversation both in my head and with my wife yesterday about, I wonder if we're going to have to be like 
the early Benedictines when it comes to evangelization, where uh, we've lost so much humanity that we literally have to teach people how to be humans first. And I am wondering if like, I mean, you know, like the, the Benedictines were like literally like exposing people to Jesus Christ, but also to like cooked meat and things like that, you know, like hygiene and stuff like that. It's like kind of giving them a humanity. And um, I'm wondering if that's kind of the way to go. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big classical education nerd. And one of the things that classical education oftentimes schools will do is they teach ballroom dance along with the along with the edu- uh, you know the the curriculum, and I'm kind of wondering if that's the route we have to go with evangelization, is to teach human interaction along with Jesus, because um, it is a little bit of a of a restart for these people, right? Where um, I I remember when I worked in a high school with my wife. Um, there was this strange phenomenon where people would be dating and you didn't know they were dating because their entire relationship was by text message. Right now it's even, even further apart, right? That it's just a very strange phenomenon. So it's like, I think we're going to have to teach people to like uh, go on dates again and to communicate again. And I, and we definitely have to reteach friendship. I mean, that's not even really a thing anymore. Um, so I don't know. I guess that's what I would say f- to, just to shoot a off the bow right there. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to make a weird statement for some of you, but um, it, it's come up a lot in my ministry here at the parish. And uh, I, I, I absolutely believe this is true. So it, for Catholics who are same sex attracted, who are trying to live the faith, they experience a profound or they can experience a profound isolation. So many of them have recaptured and rekindled this understanding of spiritual friendship, um, which there's this famous document by, uh, what is his name? Alured? Alred of Relux or something like that. Yeah. Or something probably, like that. you probably don't pronounce the X if it's French. Really? And uh, Alured has this whole treatise on spiritual friendship that's super popular right now. And one of the things that is great about that, and I think this is, I, I really do believe this is true is that it is going to be Catholics with same-sex desire, same-sex attraction. Um, They are going to rekindle what it means to be friends, right? They are going to lead the way because, you know, you have all, I mean, like the, the, the most privileged group in America, quote unquote, is, is wealthy white men. And they're also the ones committing suicide the most when they're in their forties and fifties because they're utterly lonely. They are utterly lonely. Right. And so you start to see this and it's like groups that thrive are groups that are connected to a strong sense of community. The same is true about families. And so um, what do we need to do for our kids? Well, I can tell you for our confirmation retreat, the number one thing that we do is take away their cell phones for the whole weekend. We tell them not to bring them or we physically confiscate them. And they tell us that's the most important thing. The other thing was Art of Manliness, uh, which is a podcast that's super famous, super popular. He publishes these how-to guides, and so sometimes we'll do young adult stuff where it's framed around these how-to things. So it's like, like what? Like what how to it? change a tire. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Right? right so right, you right. do these things like how to smoke a cigar, how to, uh, you know, whatever. And they're funny, but there, there are more of these books 
that like in the past they were like cotillion kind of things like how to yeah, eat at a right. formal dinner but now right. it's like how to eat in front of a human <laughs> right like not even right. a formal dinner thing <laughs> the, no fine china required so um when it comes to this social maturity the things that we're finding is that human development right the human formation what Dave said really accelerates the adoption of the spiritual practices because it's like yeah. no one else is doing this for you. We're doing this because we want to see you whole in Christ. We don't just want you to be a theology nerd. Um, it reminds me of the Christian comedy guy who said uh, – it's like, hey, guys, we're going to pass – come to youth group on Sunday. We're going to pass out Bibles to homeless people because we really care about their theology. Right? Like, right. <laughs> the idea is you got to meet them in like – Offer those programs where they are face-to-face. -face. Offer things where it's like no cell phone allowed. And you lead with that. There are coffee shops that don't have free Wi-Fi because they want people talking to each other and not staring at their phones. So yeah. um, there's a couple resources uh, going out on your own um, that I think Art of Manliness has. Um, it's like, you know, like skills books that are like five-page illustrated guides, all this stuff. And most of them are for men, but – or some of them are geared they're all geared towards men but it's for anyone and so it's stuff like i want to know how to change a tire i drive a suv how do i do that where is the right. spare tire oh it's underneath the car right. you know right. and so people bond over collective activity they really do yeah totally and i think uh yeah i, I think like you will be surprised at how how popular this kind of thing is i mean really in all honesty i remember telling this one guy like how to go out on a date and I like gave him details and I even gave him like questions to ask. And then like all his friends were like coming and asking me constantly about like, well, can you tell me what you told him? Yeah. I used to have so. programs in high school where we would do a um, love connection show. And like yeah. you were, you have like three bachelors and one, yeah. and they was an auto, you know, it was so stupid. Uh, <laughs> but afterwards, the whole point of it was we talked about dating. And then me and my now wife, then girlfriend, I, I rented a big old, uh, <laughs> big old van, and we picked everyone up, and we had them dress nice. We went to three different events. Yeah. You did a, a game, a dinner, and a dessert, and it was all about modeling the right behavior. I think that's really Dude, important. Dude, that is a good event. They they should be doing. I'm I I'm so discouraged for people who are trying to have interpersonal relationships right now. And by the way, you know, like men's movements are growing like crazy and it's not necessarily in a good way. Like their relationship is entirely through competition and like a weird machismo. So we better teach people how to like interact in normal ways. Yeah, it's getting bad out there, folks. It is getting yeah. bad out there. We need strong women and strong men. We need them both. Um, so Dave, Take we hit the 41 minute mark. So we need yeah. to we need to plow through these last two. You think you can do it? Yeah, let's take a quick break here and uh, hear from our friends at Ascension Press. We have some really cool stuff coming up that we want to tell you about. Gomer and I are um, uh, reworking the podcast with our producers and all the wonderful people there. And we're coming up with uh, kind of a seasonal approach that's coming soon. So we're really excited to be able to to do that. We think we're going to be able to offer more quality content to you. So um, we want to let you know. As always, though, we're here. If you have any questions, reach us at EKSB at ascensionpress.com. We'll be right back. And if you're looking for a way to learn more about your Catholic faith, I invite you to check out the Ascension Presents YouTube channel. You're going to find tons of free videos featuring Catholic presenters like Matt Frad, Leah Darrow, Jackie and Bobby Angel, and Emily Wilson. Go to youtube.com slash Ascension Presents. That's youtube.com slash Ascension Presents. And if you like what you see, please share and subscribe. 
All right, welcome back to EKSB. Email us at EKSB at EssentialPress.com, and we'll gather all your comments and questions, and we'll plop them down into one of these amazing, uh, amazing, uh, this very self-referential and congratulatory, amazing um, uh, listener response shows. Dave, let's go. This is lightning round for our last two. Yeah, Mary and the Resurrection. That's what this one's about. Dear Mike Gomer Gormley and Dave the Winged Husser, can't slash can't be Googled Van Vickle. Nice, nice try there. Nice try. I like it. I love listening to you guys. You've been so I've been so blessed by your lives. You're both great examples for me as a Christian husband and father. Both incredibly fun to listen to. I just hope that someday I can get to meet you both in person. Ooh, if you go to the John Bosco conference yeah, this summer. Yeah, something. Have, I have a question regarding Mother Mary after the resurrection. I've been praying the rosary and I thought about Jesus' resurrection, how the disciples and apostles reacted when they first heard the news. The Bible talks a lot about their reaction as a great joy, perplexed with lots and lots of positive adjectives, but it doesn't say anything about the reaction of his mother. Why is that the case? I'm just thinking that she would have shown the most joy and the Bible would have shown something like a great embrace between mother and son, but it's really silent on that. Is there something from church tradition that would have this kind of scene? When I pray the rosary, I use it to kind of put myself in her shoes. I meditate on the decades, but during the resurrection, I find it odd that nothing is mentioned other than the fact that she was present with the disciples. Anyway, I still love the rosary. Thanks so much. Yeah, this is a question I've often wondered, right? Like, why wasn't, why was it Mary Magdalene and not Mary, the mother of Jesus who found, who had that first dialogue with the risen Lord? You know, I, I often would wonder that, you know, why isn't Mary Mary so important? Why isn't she in the Gospels a whole heck of a lot more? What would you say, Dave? I don't know what I would say. What I think my good friend, St. Maximilian Colby would say is that um, the rejoicing on the part of the apostles would be different because Mary never really lost Jesus. I don't think uh, that they were united so closely that, of course, she experienced the loss in a way that we didn't experience it because she was redeemed by Jesus's cross. It wasn't like she didn't need redemption, but absolutely it would have been totally different than the way we experienced it. And so I don't necessarily think that she would have been surprised by the resurrection. Um, so I, I, I guess that's, I think how, how he would kind of put it. Yeah. There is a lot of that in the tradition of like, well, Mary obviously knew he was coming back. So she was just letting everyone go first. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, my, my, the way I kind of think of it is, you know, we know that Mary was there at the foot of the cross throughout his ministry, inaugurated his first public work at the wedding feast at Cana. And she was there at Pentecost. So we know that she was with the disciples that whole time. But all I can say is, I don't know. Maybe Jesus just wanted to keep it private between the two of them. Yeah. And I think like before it was about revelation of who Jesus Christ was and post-resurrection, it's kind of like about, okay, now this is what, who the church is. So I think yeah. that that makes a difference too. But don't you think like, instead of like an embrace, like you're back, it would be more like a high five. And then like, we did it. <laughs> what took you so long? <laughs> yeah, right. uh, awesome. I hope that helps, Alex. All right. Slightly yeah. faster. I'm yeah. a physics PhD student who is discerning a vocation of consecrated virginity. Awesome. Uh, for several years, I felt strongly that the Lord is calling me to be a light in physics and that my femininity is integral to that mission. That's awesome. Dave mentioned that he's done a lot of study on the feminine genius, spiritual warfare. I've been wanting to do an in-depth study of authentic Catholic femininity so I can better understand and live my femininity. But I have struggled with finding good reading beyond Mulieris Dignitatum. 
JP2's Letter to Women, and Edith Stein's Essays on Woman. Do you have any additional book recommendations besides Lisa Cotter's new book? I'm an alumna of the University of Dallas where I learned how to read nerdy saints like Aquinas. Thank you. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, those are really good places to start. I would definitely, Edith Stein is definitely one of the places to go. Um, I would thoroughly, thoroughly immerse yourself in the theology of the body, Pope John Paul II's theology of the body. Um, and there are a few things in Aquinas that I found helpful. I don't remember why it's been a long time, but he has a commentary on, um, the creation of the world. I don't remember where this is, but, uh, it's where he, Gomer, you might remember, it's where he says, you know, that uh, last mentioned first intended. He talks about uh, Eve being the crown of creation. Um, and I can't remember exactly where this is. Uh, so there, there's that. But then I would suggest that you dig into um, the lives of a few different saints. The first would be St. Hildegard of Bingen. Like find some really good primary sources about St. Hildegard of Bingen. Uh, St. Catherine of Siena. And then um, I would also try to take a look at maybe some of the more modern saint, female saints, okay? Um, because there is a lot there that you're going to have to you're going to have to draw out as opposed to it being explicit. But I think you'll get more out of it in that way, in a certain sense. But but so far you're doing good. I mean, those are good good places. I don't know. I don't know who is doing scholarly work on that right now. To be honest with you, so. Yeah, I would also look up Alice von Hildebrand's The Privilege oh, yeah. of Being a Woman. Right. Right. Um, my wife loves that. It's very short, very compact, but very powerful. You can go through the footnotes in that um, to kind of find more resources. Um, with Edith Stein, I would also recommend her book on empathy and not just her essays on woman. Um, on empathy is is just an incredible text. Um, yeah, I love it. Uh, oh, that's right. She said the essays. No, read everything on Edith Stein. Every single thing that she wrote, you should read. Yeah. Also known as Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. Love that name. Um, anything by Teresa of Avila as a, one of the great doctors and um, theologians of the church and the spiritual life. But then um, there, uh, this is going to be a little bit weird, but I think still appropriate. I recommend Matt Frad's recent episode with Dr. Abigail Favale on feminism on gender she she used to be a hardcore feminist became a catholic um ditched her feminism began introspective an introspective look at her truly ideological feminism when she found out that she was pregnant with a boy and it changed her whole life um and then she became a catholic and all these other things but she is now she's coming out with a book i think on may 30th that talks specifically about gender from a Catholic perspective and a lot of her thoughts on that. And I found that the interview with her and Matt, uh, especially about the last maybe 45 minutes or one hour, it's a three hour podcast is just exceptional. Um, in some of the stuff that she breaks down. So, um, yeah. And, and she also pointed out that we, there is a danger that we talk about the feminine genius so much in Catholic circles that we don't talk about the masculine genius. And so it becomes <laughs> imbalanced and she said, what we need is positive roles of masculinity because you cannot define masculinity apart from femininity, nor femininity apart from masculinity. And I just really loved her her approach to those things. Um, but yeah, they talk about a lot of interesting subjects in there. And she is, um, you know, she's a doctor of, I think, English English literature. So uh, Pints of the Aquinas, they have, she, and she gives a bunch of recommendations in that. Another book called The Anti-Mary on Radical Feminism and How It Damages Theology, 
might be a really good resource to understand the relationship between the feminine versus feminism versus the feminine genius kind of thing. So, yeah, those are my recommendations. Nice. So this has been Every Knee Shall Bow. We, we love being a part of the Ascension Press community. Thanks so much for joining in. As always, if you have any questions, email us, eksb at ascensionpress.com. God bless you. And I might respond to them. <laughs> There's so many sound effects. I love this thing. God bless. <laughs>